93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today I'm going to be talking about the Grateful Dead, one of the great American bands of all time, if not the greatest American band. I know that might be a controversial statement. There's a lot of Velvet Underground people out there who would say they're the best, or we just did a series on Pearl Jam. There's Pearl Jam stands. REM is probably the best American band of my lifetime, or the band that, at least that I witnessed their their peak firsthand. You know, there's the Beach Boys, there's CCR, there's the Birds, there's Van Halen. There's so many great American bands, but in terms of the music and the cultural impact and the longevity and the history and the mythology, it's hard to top the Grateful Dead. And the reason I'm talking about them is that there's a new movie coming out about the Grateful Dead. It's a four-hour documentary. It's called Long Strange Trip. If you live in a bigger city, it's possible that this film is still screening in your town, so you could go see it in a theater. Otherwise, it's going to be streaming on Amazon Prime starting on Friday, June 2nd. And um, I'm a big fan of the movie. I loved it. And I wanted to talk about it, so I called up my friend, Jesse Jarnow author and critic, a dead scholar. Uh, he was the guy. I, 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 when I saw the movie, I was like, what does Jesse think of this movie? I really like it, but does Jesse like it? So I wanted to find that out. So I called him up, and we talked about it. It had a really great conversation. We talked about the movie. We talked about The Grateful Dead. We talked about Vince Welnick's pre-dead career and Brent Midland's pre-dead career. We went into the minutia of the band. We went everywhere. Um, it was a really fun talk. And um, I'm excited to get to it. But before we do, I want to welcome a new sponsor. It's SeatGeek. Has SeatGeek ever advertised on a podcast before? I don't know. Maybe you haven't heard of it. But, uh, of course, I'm being facetious here. There are many podcasts, but this is the best podcast for them to be on because this is a, a podcast for music geeks. And I know a lot of you buy a lot of concert tickets. And let me tell you about SeatGeek. You know, buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there's a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. Now, I have the SeatGeek app on my own phone and uh, it's easily the the best thing that I've, I've I've found to shop for tickets. It can be I can be anywhere, and which is in just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. Like for instance, I'm I'm gonna go see Tom Petty this next weekend. I need a ticket, so I just went on SeatGeek, found a great deal, got the tickets. I'm gonna go see Petty. I'm gonna go get drunk and sing along to American Girl. It's gonna be a fabulous night. Now SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats to fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Now, if this isn't enough... To make you use SeatGeek, I have an offer for you guys, my listeners. You will get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. 
All you do is you download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code CELEBRATION today. That's promo code CELEBRATION for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. I know you guys go to concerts anyway. Use this app, and you're going to get $20 off your next concert ticket. It's a great deal with a great service. That's SeatGeek, our sponsor for today's episode. So, Long Strange Trip, coming out on Amazon Prime. And, you know, this is a movie that I think accomplishes something that's really hard to do, which on one hand, it appeals, it's going to appeal to hardcore deadheads. And on the other hand, it's going to appeal to people who don't care about the Grateful Dead at all, who don't own any of the records or don't know any of the songs or any of that stuff. Um, if you're a fan of the band, this movie really digs into the minutia. You know, a lot of the stuff that maybe a, a conventional documentary wouldn't cover. You know, th- there really is so much mythology about the Grateful Dead. It's kind of hard to condense it down into a movie, even a four-hour documentary. I mean, even the roadies for the Grateful Dead are famous. Even like the PA system that they used in the mid-70s, you know, it's known as the Wall of Sound. That has its own mythology to it. Um, all these things are covered in a very interesting way. And if that's the stuff that you care about, you're going to get a lot of that stuff. You know, one of my favorite sequences in the movie is, uh, you know, talking about concert tapes and how there's lots of people who will scour concert tapes for like the ultimate version of their favorite Grateful Dead song. And Al Franken is talking about this and he's talking about the song Althea and how he's listened to like a hundred different versions of Althea and he's found the best version and it's the version from May 16th, 1980 at the, Nas- at the Nassau Coliseum. And he's talking about why the guitar solo in this particular version of Althea is so great. And I think it really captures like why people like the Grateful Dead and like why they're so obsessive about it. And I loved it because Althea is like one of my favorite Grateful Dead songs. So as an Althea head, that was awesome. So you get a lot of that stuff, a lot of this sort of nerdy detail kind of minutia stuff. But for the people who don't care about any of that stuff or don't know about it. Um, ultimately, Long Strange Trip, it tells sort of a classic American story. A story that like, if you've seen Citizen Kane or There Will Be Blood or even like The Godfather Part Two, if you've seen movies like that, Long Strange Trip essentially has the same story. It's about an American visionary named Jerry Garcia, this guy who basically wanted to invent his own world, a world where he could be himself and be free. And he did that, and it was called The Grateful Dead. And he flourished. It grew into an industry. He was a captain of industry, just like Charles Foster Kane and Daniel Plainview. You know, he wasn't, he was much more passive than those characters. He was much nicer and gentler than those characters. But he was this sort of larger-than-life American, you know, this idea of the American dream where you can invent yourself and you can invent your own reality. In a way, you know, that's that's sort of the ultimate American story. That's what this film is. That it tells that story. But of course, if you're familiar with those other films, <laughs> you know how this story ends. The cyclical nature of these American vision, visionary stories is that the person who invents an industry, who becomes larger than life, eventually is consumed by the thing that they've created. Uh, they get driven over the edge. You know. The freedom that Jerry Garcia represented to people, it was a beacon, it was a light, but that light was very hot and it burned. And uh, 
the film, I think, does a really good job of sort of tracing how the Grateful Dead went from this idea to this sort of corporatized stadium-filling machine and how Garcia was always the guy at the center of it, but he sort of shrank smaller and smaller at the center. Um, and I think it's just a, it's, it, it's a great dramatic story, and uh, I think it's something that's going to appeal to people, whether they like the dead or not. So without further ado, uh, I want to bring out Jesse here. Uh, this is my friend Jesse Jarnow and I talking about The Grateful Dead. Well, Jesse, <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled that you're on to talk about this movie with me. Um, I've seen it twice. I, have you seen it once? Because I know you're going to see I, it tonight. I, I saw, um, I actually saw a cut in, a full cut in progress before it was quite finished. And then I saw um, an abbreviated version of, of, I guess, two of the four acts in a theatrical screening. And tonight I'm going to go see the full thing in a full theatrical screening. So I'm, I'm psyched to see how it all shakes out. Yeah. So, okay, I I think one of the strengths of this movie is that it doesn't just appeal to hardcore deadheads. I think that people who even don't care about the dead could get into the movie just because of the storytelling. But before we get into that part, as a representative of, of hardcore deadheads, I'm, I'm turning to you as a spokesman. <laughs> I'm electing you as a spokesperson. Do you think, like the hardcore people, the hardcore deadheads, who can be a famously prickly bunch, they can be hard to please... Do you think that they are going to like this movie? Do you think it's there's enough there that, that it's going to meet their standards for what a dead movie should be? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, there, there's certainly um, there's certainly factions of deadheads where I, I can imagine people, you know, finding finding things to to, to you know pick through and 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 deconstruct and maybe complain about a little bit. But on the whole, I think. It's really that you know the personality of the band really shines through um, in a very in a very clear way, um, and you know the, it, it doesn't it doesn't tell the whole story in the sense that a lot of kind of the later years are maybe a little bit on on fast forward, um, but I think that's a that's a fine way to to approach this material. You know, <laughs> I actually already, I actually thought uh, the, I thought there was more of the later years than I was expecting. Like you're right that there. They, they spend more time probably, you know, the first like 10 years of the band's uh, lifespan is like the, the first two hours of the movie. And then like the next 20 years uh, is the is the next two hours. But um, I actually really liked the back half of the movie, I think more than I expected, just because it was a little fresher to me. And it's also where the saddest part of the movie is. So it, it, it's kind of the most emotional part of the movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and, and by saying it's on fast, you know, fast forwarding, I, I don't mean that it's, it's shortchanging that part of the story. I just mean that some of the, the details of the later era of the band, of, you know, like I don't, I don't think Vince Wellnick's name comes up, <laughs> for example. So in that sense, it's, you know, you know, to not name a couple of them, you know, Vince and, I, you know, I think maybe... Tom Constantin doesn't come up to you or not name every single musician that ever played in the band is a step towards, you know, I guess, technical incompleteness. But, but I think this story, the, the movie really just has an emotional heart, um, which is, which is Garcia, which is Jerry Garcia. And, and that follows through in such a big way during that last reel that, you know, some of the, you know, some of the lost details just, they, they don't matter. Yeah. I mean, there's that, uh, I mean, and you're right that the this is not a conventional documentary in the sense that 
you know, it's going to start in 1965 and say, 1965, the Grateful Dead released, you know, their first record. And then an Anthem of the Sun comes in this year and blah, 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 like this sort of blow-by-blow blow history. Right. Like, I, right. I, that already exists, actually. It's really good... Uh documentary uh from anthem to beauty that is that is exactly that yes uh, the, the classic albums yeah uh, documentary yeah, album series which is really good yeah, and there's there's a lot of robert hunter in that i was just actually i rewatched that recently and i was surprised by how much robert hunter is in that documentary because he like there's a thing in long strange trip where it's he's like very elusive and he's only in the film very briefly but he's actually talking a lot in that classic albums thing right which is really one of the only places that he ever he ever did that you know he's very you know he's he's mercurial i guess is the word in that in that sense where you know sometimes he's kind of willing to sort of be that be that public figure but you know a lot of the times i think he's more content to you know just let himself be in the background right you know kind of getting back to that idea of doing like a conventional doc you know i i interviewed the director amir barlev for a story I did for Uproxx uh, last week. It'll be last week by the time this podcast airs. And he, he talked about that, how he didn't want to make a Wikipedia entry, that he wanted yeah. to make a film that would work not just as a, as a history of the band, but it would work as a narrative film, where if you didn't know anything about the dead, that it'd be a compelling thing to watch because there's great characters in the movie and there's also this story in the movie, and you just alluded to it, where I mean, it does talk about the, the Grateful Dead and their and their sort of greater cultural significance and what they they meant as a band. And you see all the other guys in the band, but it really is at its core the story of Jerry Garcia. And yeah, and and this is and the, and the analogy I made when I wrote about it, like to me when I watched it, the way the film is structured in a way it, it reminded me of movies like uh, Citizen Kane and There Will Be Blood, like these films about like great towering American visionaries basically who invent an industry. You know, sort of sometimes intentionally, sometimes right. not. And and how it, and it's this quintessentially American story about how, you know, people set out, they go out into the frontier and they create something. And then it in a way it ends up consuming them, you know, because uh, it becomes so large. But this right. this film is sophisticated enough, I think, to to show that uh, that maybe Garcia knowingly went into it knowing that might happen. Or that he, or 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 that at least he was willing to accept the consequences of that as sort of the the yin and the yang of being totally free. Oh, of of the the success that that followed. You well, mean like just the fact that they turned into the the, the giant industry well, that they did? Well, yeah. Well, and the fact that you know that the dead became this thing that he couldn't control anymore. You know that right. that it was that it became its own thing, and that because you know, there's always this thing. Like I think when you watch the movie. To me, there's this question towards the end where, you know, like, should Jerry have left or should he have taken five years off and, and just gotten better and, and not have been in this machine? You know, because, like, there's that sequence with Bridget Meyer where he had that liaison with her and, he's, and he's, he has that interview with her where he's talking about sort of an alternate timeline for his life. Like, if he had just had a life with her instead of pursuing this band. Right. And... Like to but me, which know, is like a rosebud moment I, I, in that movie, but oh, go ahead. I think a large part of his personality was was really drawn to that lack of control. Just, right. You know. Uh, you know. On one hand, he was this charismatic leader, and I think that that carries through in the movie. You know, very very strongly. I think that's one of the movies for me. You know, one of the biggest appeals is just really how articulate and and charming 
Garcia can be and is just in, you know in his story in the storytelling mode. Um, you know, he, he's just so funny and self-conscious and self-aware in a lot of ways. So, so obviously when you get to the, the later parts of the story, one of the real like heartbreaks is that, that, you know, he's, he's, he's not quite as, not quite as self-aware or at least, you know, or at least was willing to, to be publicly self-aware about, about sort of the, the some of the stuff that was going on. In well, the he was years. isolated, but in this cocoon where he couldn't, you know, he was, I mean, Jerry Garcia, he had, you know, it's the beard, it's the glasses. I mean, he was like a character, you know, that was, that was sort of the Jerry Garcia character. And then there was him, but like, he couldn't just be a guy. And right. Then, and, and then you right. put heroin and, on top of that. You yeah. Know, and it's and just, I think in, in some ways, I think that's what he, you know, he craves to be, to be, like I said, to sort of be out of, you know, to have it be out of his control, but I think maybe that 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 passiveness maybe you know perhaps went a, went, went a little too far in in in, in some regards. Um, but but you, but, know, I, but you know, just to get back to my original point, though, I I think that for people who maybe don't care about the dead, I think that there's a narrative in this film that um, is sort of bigger than than the dead in a way or that it's this story that we that we're familiar with from other from other films and other books so the sort it's the great american story about a person who tries to invent themselves who does invent themselves is successful at it but then there's consequences of that and sort of the drama that comes out of that like to me that's the story in this film that maybe will speak to people who are maybe neophytes to the band right right yeah no i i like that image of, of garcia it's like you know a cap captain of industry, you know, <laughs> in, in that, in that, I like that framing of it. Like, um, like, like a passive man in a lot of ways, but also a guy who had so much like creative, like centrifugal force that he could just propel himself forward. Even if he didn't want to be the leader, he, he just was no matter what he professed. To right. Do. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the, you know, that's the contradiction in him in, in the sense that he, he didn't want to be that leader. But yet there he was, you know, in the early 70s, just sort of being this font of ideas and, and, you know, not just music, but like, you know, concepts, you know, the, you know, the Grateful Dead starting their own record company and distribution chain and, and, and Jerry diving in to, to direct the, the, the Grateful Dead movie in 1974, which, you know, lasted, <laughs> brought, brought him, you know, a couple, a couple years into the future. Um, and, and just the, the sort of the, the, the breadth of his creativity in, during all of that. Um, and he was really involved um, in, in the day-to-day business of the Grateful Dead. He would, as far as, you know, the, the stories I've been told is that, you know, he would be the first guy at the office on a weekday at, like, pretty early, like, you know, 7 or 8 or 9 a.m. He would, he would show up at the office and, you know, be, be smoking joints and, and drinking, drinking coffee and, <laughs> making making a lot of the decisions and i think that you know that 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 part of him really disappeared when when the addiction happened but you know in the early years he was a very very active voice you know a very you know he what he really was was the leader you know late, later years he really did take his, his his foot off the gas and and kind of you know recede but um but but yeah before that he was he, there, there was no no question about who the leader of that band was, even yeah. even if he he denied it. Yeah, I want to go back to this idea of like you know the, the sort of dead, the Grateful Dead sort of consuming Garcia by the end of his life, because this is something that comes up in the film. You know, there's this framing device uh, where Garcia is talking about how when he was a kid he saw Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. You know, uh, which 
he talks about how this sort of introduced him to the idea that there was a there was another world out there that was weird, you know, and that he felt the pull of that. Like he wanted to be a part of this sort of weirdness that was beyond sort of the you know normal mainstream of American life. And then at the end of the movie, it comes up again because you know he, he talks about it in, in an interview that he did just you know a, not long before he died. So this was like one of the last interviews he ever did, and he was talking about this yeah, film. Yeah, he's, he's not looking great there. And he's not looking great, but he's but he's still. Very as always. Exactly, and very charming, as you say. And then at the end of the movie, it comes up again. And to me, when I watched it, the implication was that, you know, that he was Dr. Frankenstein and that he built this monster that, you know, kind of took him over by the end of his life. And, you know, and I, and I brought that up to Amir Barlev when, we, when I interviewed him. And he was, uh, you know, I could tell that he wasn't totally comfortable with the implications of that, at least not stating it plainly in, in those words. Because I think it is, I don't think it's a matter of saying like, oh, Jerry should have should have quit or this should have happened. Because I think it's clear that Jerry was a guy, even if the Grateful Dead wasn't touring, he would have done the Jerry Garcia band or he would have done something else. Like he just wanted to make music and be out there sort of in his blood. But I mean, like for you as a fan, I mean, do you, do you think about this ever? Do you ever have alternate timelines in your mind where you're like, you know, what if Jerry stopped in 92 and took a break and... You know, came back in 1997 or something. And, oh and yeah, no, I've got yeah, t- tons of the, tons of those timelines. I mean, for me, you know, the first maybe you know, the the big alternate timeline is you know, what if they stayed a single drummer band? You know, what if what if they stayed? <laughs> you know, what if Mickey Hart never came back and they 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 continued on as a as a quintet? Like, well, you know, what happens then? Like so that, you know, that's one. And is that a superior you know, there, reality there are, there are in your different ones? It's like oh, man, if, if you just if if they had this direction if they had kept practicing and in, in, you know in 78 or 79 or but yeah it's those those are those alternate timelines are, are fun to entertain but it's hard to it's hard to fall too deeply into them right i mean um, it's just for me like because it, it is such a human story about garcia that i that I, I could not help my mind going there i mean it, it does seem in a way that what his fate was inevitable but then i wonder well what if other things could have happened. Of course, we'll never know. But uh, to me, that's like one of the questions that the film raises at the end of the, when you're done watching it. Right, right, right. Yeah. But I mean, and the thing is, like, you know, that Garcia, even in kind of the, the, the deepest, darkest, worst throes of, of, of his, of the years when he was addicted to heroin, remained a really committed musician. And then that's right. just, that's the thing that I think, can't be forgotten here. So he was, you know, even during all that, he was playing multiple times a week, most of the time, even when the dead weren't on the road. Right. So it's not like it drained his productivity. And, you know, there's, there's a question about what it did to his creativity, of course. Um, but, you know, he stayed. He, he was a present musician in a lot of ways up until the end. There's all kinds of, like, little weird nooks to discover in in 80s and 90s dead and solo Jerry, like him playing on like a random yoga tape with, with <laughs> Mickey Scully is something that happens in like the middle of the 80s. And, you know, just these, these like little turns. Um, because, you know, on one hand, sure, you can you can envision a future where, you know, maybe Jerry stays clean or something else happens, but then you don't get, you don't get the reality where he, he has this amazing decade-long partnership with David Grisman towards the end, or maybe not even decade-long, half-decade-long, where, you know, they, they record all that, 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 that deep, weird folk stuff. Um, and I feel like you, you don't get, you know, 
you don't get to that without without all the stuff that came right before that. Well, and there's so a, it, there's a remarkable quote in the uh, towards the end of the movie. I think it's Nick Pumgarden who says this. It might be it might be someone else, but he talks about how like towards the end, when you would see the Grateful Dead, how when Jerry would sing songs about death and you would see the condition he was in, in some way it like added to the performance of the song. It was like a new level of authenticity when he would sing Broke Down Palace or Death Don't Have No Mercy or something. You know, that like, wow, this guy means it, you know, because he doesn't look good. He's sort of in rough shape, but he's still carrying on. He's still up there playing the guitar. I mean, it's sort of an odd thing to think or say, but it did add maybe a level of drama to those shows for people. There's a, there's a, I, I don't think it made it into the movie. There's a really wonderful clip of Jerry talking about a bad trip that he had. Um, it's, it's another interview from later in his life. Um, and it's, it's about a show at the Fillmore Auditorium in, in, uh, late 69 that became one of the Dick's picks where he talks about how, like, he basically accidentally, accidentally on purpose got way too high on acid and had this show long paranoid fantasy that he was about to be assassinated on stage, that there were like assassins lurking in the crowd. And he, he and he talks about it, he's like, Yeah, that night, man, it's like I just decided to play for my life. And <laughs> and I try to channel that like kind of at all at all times now and I you know, and I need that reserve. I, I think about I think about playing for my life. Yeah. So that notion that he is that it's a life or death situation up there for for Jerry was was actually very I feel like present in his mind, he was aware of that, but it goes back to to the years where he wasn't, you know, battling these ravages. But yet, but that that was there, you know. Yeah, that, that was. Um, yeah, that's that was always sort of present in his art towards the end. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they were the Grateful Dead, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they I, were. Yeah, the, the death imagery was was there right from the start. It's you know, it's like it's almost like that saying, you know, hang hang a gun over the door in the first act, and by the end, it has to go off. Right. You know, you set yourself up with a name like Grateful Dead, and you know things things are going to happen. Right. You know, if you, if you stick around long enough. You know, one of the things that surprised me about the movie, in a, in a good way, was that the film does end with Jerry Garcia's death because I knew that the band members were involved. Uh, you know, they, they participated in the documentary. It's not an authorized documentary because I know they've actually had some complaints about it, and you can maybe talk about that, but. Um, I expected that we were going to see a montage from Fare Thee Well at the end, or that John Mayer was going to make a cameo and like wave his hand <laughs> right. or something. But the film does end with Jerry Garcia's death, and like on one hand, that is sort of a self-evident thing. You would, it's not a shock that it would end that way, but it did seem like a courageous choice to me because the Grateful Dead, as a as a brand, as an industry, I mean, it's carried on now. For almost 22 years since Jerry Garcia died, he died in it was August of '95. Um, so to kind of, I mean, it's not a firm period on the band's history, but it does. It, it, the film does say that, like, well, this is kind of the end, and whatever happened after this is sort of a different story. It's not connected. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, to me, I mean, I, I mean, I think that's. I think that's exactly the right move to make in that situation. I, you know, I, I, I think that's where the story of the dead does end in a lot of ways. And I think from a, from a, a filmmaker's point of view, um, the idea of conveying the, the complexity of the narrative after that point where the dead sort of 
fall, fall into chaos and, you know, there's all this infighting and this kind of endless succession of, of spin-off bands. You know, I don't think that, that lends itself at all to, to satisfying resolution in, <laughs> in, 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 a, in a documentary. So I, you know, I, I get like he didn't do that. I feel like the, the, there, there, there's, you know, there's probably another movie there of, of what happened to the dead after after Jerry died. It would be like the dead equivalent of, of I don't remember the name of it, the, the Journey documentary. Oh, right. <laughs> which I think which, is a... Which, f- which, you know, I, I, I hate Journey, but I found that film so charming. Right. And, and so, it, I, I, you know, I, I would watch a documentary about, about the later the later dead years. I would, too. But, I mean, but, I think that's a fascinating one other, story. Uh, one other thing, though, that, that, that struck me recently is that... I, is that you know the the, the members of the band? Oh, it makes sense to me that they would want to have representation of those later incarnations, but I also think in their mind it, it did end in '95. I think they're really aware of that. It, uh, uh, they on some instinctual level. Um, I interviewed uh, Bob Weir a couple of weeks back, um, and one of the things that I asked her that was you know sort of you know, how they impart their, the, the, the old songs to the new musicians. And he said, well, you know, we really like to, we like them to hear every single, like, incarnation of the song we have. Like, it's important for them to know what the song was in the 70s and, the, you know, if it went back to the 60s, what it was like there, and, like, how we, how the song kept evolving. And we like them to know what we were doing with that song up until 95 when Jerry died. Like everything, all the different conversations we were having in the song, we want them to know that. But then they don't play, apparently don't play them, you know, the 22 years of the song that have existed since Jerry died, you know? Yeah. Like they don't play the 2003 version of The Dead or the, you know, Further or any of that. It's almost as if to them... Like the key part of the, the text of the song ends when 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 Jerry dies, um, and I, I found that to be pretty revealing. Yeah, actually. Well, one of the many fascinating things about this sort of like post-Jerry life that the Grateful Dead has had is that the members of the Dead have been sort of directly involved in like mentoring and almost uh, you know like grooming their successors like like i mean there's this thing happening in classic rock i think in all sorts of places where you know classic rockers are starting to die off and there's this but there's still this audience out there that wants to hear this music and it and that's definitely i mean i mean that's more true of the dead than pr- pretty much any band and you know like you have a band like uh like joe russo's almost dead like a lot of the guys in that band i mean that's a huge you know sort of tribute band to the dead a lot of the guys in those bands have played with members of the dead before so it's almost like they are um it's almost like grateful dead university and like we're gonna like train people to play these songs after we're gone i mean it's a fascinating thing it is sort of like this um it does feel that almost like the grateful dead is like a strain of the blues or folk music that's its own thing that that, like people are kind of carrying forward yeah i I agree with that completely um i mean i think I think Phil Lesh actually had an event that he called like Phil Lesh University or, or, or Dead <laughs> University. There's some that that phrase has certainly has certainly cropped up to, to describe what's happened. Um, but something that I think is, is important to consider as well is that that vocabulary that the dead are, are you know teaching and, and and trying to self-consciously pass on is something that musicians figured out you know long before that point as well. Like dead cover dead cover bands 
uh, existed all the way back into the 60s. Like, I found an example of a dead, a dead cover band from New Jersey that started in, like, 68 or 69, where the guy was like, he's like, yeah, I got the tape of, I think it was, uh, like, September 19th, 1970 at the Fillmore East, and I, like, I learned Jerry's Not Fade Away solo and, like, really just, you know, studied the studied it as much as I could. Um, and that, you know, that... That wanting to understand that, the, wanting an understanding of the the dead's kind of musical tricks, like how you know how they fit the scale, you know the scales together to be able to transition from one piece into another or, or whatever, I think is has been, you know, just around for 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 all that time. You know, they're dead cover bands in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. And I, what's happened now is is I think there's been like a merging of the dead family, the dead musical family. With with this with these bands, you know, when the dead were around and playing stadiums, there's 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 a, you know there's obviously a divide between this giant stadium band and these you know legions of, of fans out there, but that you know that's another thing that happens when when Garcia dies, you know, the curtain goes down or or something happens to the metaphorical curtain and 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 you know suddenly you do have Bob Weir hanging out in, in bars playing with musicians all the time and, and <laughs> right. that kind of thing. Right. So yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a fluid thing, but I agree completely that it's a, that it's a language, a language of its own. Like, you know, they're, they're, those are standards in, in right. certain parts of the world. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, I was thinking about this earlier today. I was thinking about just the, the, the Garcia Hunter songbook and, you know, I mean, Robert Hunter, especially as a lyricist, I mean, I, I don't know if there's a rock lyricist that was better at infusing American mythology in, into rock music, where you would create, where he, they were able to create songs that like didn't seem like they were written, like they seemed like they were found, like right. they existed forever. I, even like someone like Bob Dylan, to me at that time, there was always a modernist streak in whatever he did, even when he was working yeah. in a folk idiom. It, like yeah. it always felt like, well, this was created now you know it, these aren't ancient songs but like friend of the devil or dire wolf i mean you know you have to check the the listings to see like well this <laughs> this must be a cover but no they wrote this song like this song yeah. was written at that there's time there's a there's a story that i think robert hunter tells somewhere about someone who who worked in the in in the actual cumberland mine that you know that cumberland blues references and he heard he heard Cumberland Blues, and his reaction was, you know, I, w I wonder what the guy who wrote this thought, you know, would have thought if he knew a band like the Grateful Dead was going to play it. <laughs> you know, it's just such a great, such a great compliment. Oh yeah, totally. And 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 to be able to do that in a non-hokey way, like not using yeah. old-timey language, or just using language that is so plain-spoken that like comes from the best folk songs, like that tradition, and to write in that way, um, it's just amazing. And then you have the amazing music, of course, that Garcia wrote with that, but. Um, it just always, that, that just always knocks me out when I hear those songs because it just seems like, wow, they wrote these songs because they don't seem written. You know, there's, right. They're very artful, but they seem artless when you hear them. Yeah, I mean, it's not like a faux Americana thing to me. It's not like, you know, I, I guess I'm thinking of like Mumford & Sons or whatever, you know, right. bands up there and they're overall playing, you know, <laughs> banjos and all this stuff that's kind of come out after, I guess, after the O oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. I don't know what you call this kind of like new, new wave of like kind of Americana or whatever. But there's, there's a real, the dad had a feel to it in a, in a way that, that, that I think is a lot more connected to those roots than a lot of people. I mean, 
you know, Garcia really studied that stuff. He, he, he drove cross, before the dead were around, he drove cross country to go see Bill Monroe and, and taped Bill Monroe. Like he hung out, he and his buddy hung out for a week in, in somebody's basement copying bluegrass tapes and, you know, learning to copy the licks. Like that was, you know, he was a, a, a really, he, he went deep into that, into those, into those roots. Um, and I think that, you know, has a lot to do with why it sounds so natural. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's so much history with the Grateful Dead, so much mythology, even a four-hour documentary, even an eight-hour documentary probably couldn't cover it all. Was there anything in particular when you were, you know, when you've seen the movie, like, where you're like, oh, I wish they would have covered this or, you know, that, you know, if you had, if you were in the editing room, you would have wanted to put in the movie? Oh, interesting. Um, Maybe in some places I would have liked to hear them the musicians talk a little bit more directly about the music itself, yeah, um, and how the music was 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 constructed, um, and sort of not necessarily their intentions, but sort of some some more about the what the the visceral experience of playing that music was was like in terms of you know thinking on your feet and and like how how you're reacting to the other musicians and you know how you know how Phil Lesh's mind works as a bassist and like, you know, what, what he's thinking about when he's playing those extremely weird bass parts, that kind of stuff. Right. There's a little bit of that in the, uh, in the Bob Weir documentary, just a tiny bit. There's like, but, um, and there's, I think there's, I, I, I haven't seen Long Strange Trip in, in, in a few months. So there actually might be a little bit of that in there too. But that's something that I always love hearing them talk about is just sort of like break, breaking that down. But besides that, as a deadhead, and, and a, this is a dead freak, the movie, you know, it not only told the story, and not only got, you know, hit on the emotional stuff, but it's had all these sources of footage that that I had never seen before, never even sus- suspected existed. Yeah. Um, and that, that to me, was, was a real, just huge selling point on the movie. It was like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a, there's a long, I don't, I don't want to ruin the ending of, the, of this particular sequence because it's my favorite thing in the movie, but there's a whole, there's a whole chunk that's, this, you know, never even rumored film that's basically the dead's version of Don't Look Back, of like a BBC <laughs> crew following them around London for a day in 1970 or a couple of days or something that, and you know, it's like a movie, it's like a movie within the movie. Right. Um, and that was, that was just, just astonishing to me to see them, you know, the, 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 the footage of them rehearsing Candyman was, was the kind of thing that I loved that, you know, that, right. that's some of, some of what I would, I would have liked to see more of, but you know, I don't know how much of that stuff exists where it's like literally, you know, Phil and Jerry and Bob rehearsing the harmonies to Candyman, and like, you know, you can see their dynamics on full display. Yeah. Like, you know, Jerry is the cool guy. Phil is kind of the, you know, the official band asshole, and Bobby is kind of like the young, you know, the young sprout trying to trying to keep it together. Yeah, isn't like Jerry like coaching Bob on like how to? Yeah. Like, <laughs> he's yeah. like, no, no, you're not singing uh, yeah, on it's key very, here. Very sweet. It's not, you know. Yeah, not, yeah. When I say it's, you know the band dynamic is on full display, I don't think it's like. I don't think it's, I'm trying to think of another like rock documentary moment where you, you know, like something in like the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Or like Let It Be. Like, where you see like, you know, where you see, you know, Jeff Tweedy and Jay Bennett like at odds with each other. It's like there's tension there in the dead one, but there's still so much clear love between them at that point right. that it, that it, it's just, it, it's great to see. You know, one thing, one person who's not in the movie and, and, 
I don't know if she's been kind of. It seems like she's been sort of kicked out of the camp. But it was Betty Cantor Jackson, who like was the you know engineer, recorded so many of the shows that ended up being, you know, traded by people. Like she's a big part of preserving their their legacy. And I mean, isn't there something weird? Like cause I know she was married to Rex, uh, Rex Jackson, who was a famous roadie in the Dead. Yeah, well, and, and by I the mean, way, like the Dead is the kind of band that has famous roadies. That's how much mythology is in this band. I mean, I can I can probably name most of the members of the, the classic Grateful Dead road crews. Um, but it seems like she's been kind yeah, of Betty, taken out of the history. Know, so the Betty story is really complicated, and like you know, like other things, it could totally be broken off into into its own thing. Uh, David Brown uh, does a really good job talking about the Betty story in, in his in his So Many Roads bio. Um, but part of it is that you know Betty has this extended complicated relationship with with the band and i think both musicians and sort of the, the larger corporate entity of the grateful dead and i think probably made it would made it hard for her to to either say yes or to even get her in there in a way that would be you know comprehensible and dramatic to to a general audience that wouldn't be just in, you know inside baseball about you know the what what was going on there, but she's a I mean that, her story is 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 fascinating and really you know ultimately pretty kind of sad and it's a, a reflection of probably you know definitely kind of the, you know some of the sexism really inherent in the dead scene right um, well, yeah because it, that she was she was a really really like I can't underscore how important she was to the dead's recording crew and engineering crew you know beginning in 1969 and 1970 and all through the the classic years um you know work, working on live dead and american beauty and all all this stuff and eventually these, these tapes that are now known as the betty boards where she would run a separate mix to, to and, and make these beautiful live recordings yeah, just pristine that, sound that cornell boxes from like some of the best live sound you're ever going to hear on any live record like she yeah. captured like, they remastered it for the new for the the new box set and i like I like it's always been like that that Cornell seventy seven tape has always been such an amazing sounding tape and they managed to like make it sound even better <laughs> you know it's, right. it's it's shocking to me well this... um, but so just to to wrap up was that real quick is that well you know she uh, she was married to Rex who died in the car accident in in nineteen seventy six and she you know she stayed on on the Dead Crew and she made those 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 tapes because she was part of the Dead Crew. Um, and when Brent Midland came into the band in the early 80s, they they dated for a period and broke up. Um, and at the point when they broke up, the way she tells the story is that the, she felt isolated from the band, that they couldn't just – suddenly she was, an, she was an ex-old lady. That was how she put it. And <laughs> right. she was no, – they, they for some reason just couldn't think of her as a member of the sound crew anymore. Suddenly she was just an ex. And that – separated her and that's you know that's that's pretty messed up given yeah. that given you know her real seniority in that in that sound crew um and that uh, ultimately led her to leave the band and and eventually you know she put these tapes in into a storage locker and she was you know she was she hit pretty bad times like a lot of like a lot of you know hippies did in the early 80s and asked the band to, to you know to pay for the the storage of these tapes and they refused, and they ended up in the in the public domain. And after that, I think the, the the legal stuff gets really complicated. That probably 
you know, makes things not not, not quite as interesting to, to non-dad heads. Yeah, right. Well, you know, shout out to Betty Cantor Jackson. She's yeah, great. For sure. We got, no, we, we're, a, we're giving her. We're going to give her her props on this hero. podcast. She's a hero for sure. Um, so you, you mentioned Cornell '77, and uh, you know that came out earlier this month, and this is. Mm-hmm. Show is from May eighth, nineteen seventy seven. Historic dead show. I have, you know I remember the first time I heard this show. It was like maybe I was working at the Onion at the time, and I was playing it in my office, and um, it was the the Scarlet Fire came on, and this dude who I worked with just came into the office, and he's like, "Is this Cornell seventy seven? Like he just he knew that that specific Scarlet Fire was from that show, so. That's how famous the show was, like many years before it was officially released. But right, um, easy to identify by those bass bombs in the bass slides. Exactly, the, the bass bombs at the beginning, very distinctive in that version. I mean, I guess first of all, like, like talk about like why that show has the reputation it has, and I'm also wondering, like, in your opinion, do you feel like it deserves that reputation, or has it been sort of blown out of proportion, maybe a little bit? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's that's certainly a big question. I'll add that the uh, the first time I remember the first time I heard that show was probably in high school, and I you know I heard the hype before it. You know, the hype certainly preceded it, and I was completely underwhelmed by it the first for the first few years that I had those those tapes. You know that. Like, I, I thought the Scarlet Begonia's Fire in the Mountain was, was awesome, and I love those bass slides, but to me, it was just like, this isn't Dark Star. You know, this is not, <laughs> this is not like deep, crazy, psychedelic, grateful dead. This is, this is something else, which is, which is, you know, something to, to recognize about that period as well. So that period of the late 70s grateful dead is really just the beginning of the populist Grateful Dead, or not the beginning, but like a, a, a reasserting of the, the populist Grateful Dead that became the stadium band in the 80s and 90s, where they were kind of focusing on these sort of tight things as opposed to these long, sprawling improvisations that kind of defined the earlier parts of the 70s. Yeah, they were powerful um, in, 90, in, in 1977. I just think of them being powerful, very like compact and like like you said yeah, arena rocky yeah. where they can and hit you in the mouth in, in that context i think uh cornell is pretty magical um there it's circular so that the same the one of the reasons it's so famous is because of the amazing recording betty Cantor jackson made it's just this incredible official you know officially unofficial soundboard recording that we were just talking about but there was also a really a uh, legendary audience tape of it made by uh, Jerry Moore, who is one of the, the first legendary underground dead tapers. And that's circulated, and that's really where the reputation starts. Uh, Dick Lotvilla, who's the guy who Dick's Picks was, was named after, there's a page from his journal from like two months after the show happens where he's like, you know, he, w- he, he would go through all the shows and, and, and note, note all the highlights. And he's, he's pretty clearly freaking out about the show, and, and not in the sense that it's like, this is like, a legendary, you know, the greatest thing ever, but it's every single version of so- every song on that is like a really just sparkling, powerful version of, of that song. It's a, and, and that, and that to me is, is where the Cornell magic comes through. Um, one of my projects this spring has been to, to listen to every show from, from the spring of 77, part of a, a bigger project to listen to, Every dead show. So I've listened to everything from from '66 up to up to where I am now, which is the, the end of the May '77 tour. And in the context of that tour, which which began in in, in late April, um, 
the shows keep getting tighter and tighter and tighter until you get to Cornell. And then in Cornell, just all the pe- you know, Cornell and Boston the night before, just like all the pieces are just falling together, both in terms of sound quality and performance of their old songs, but also that they're, they, you know, they have this batch of new songs that, that, that's extremely powerful that, no, that, that nobody heard in those audiences unless they were following the band around every night. Um, you know, Charlotte, Fire on the Mountain was, was a brand new song. You know, most of the people, the vast, vast majority of people at that Cornell show had never heard Fire on the Mountain before. That was their first exposure to it. And I think that, you know, adds the, the, sort of that thrill of the new adds something to the dead's performance um, there. Estimated Profit also was, was brand new, that tour. And, and, and uh, Terrapin Station, not played at that show, but uh, played the night before. Uh, also, you know, a big, big centerpiece for that tour. You know, one weird a, friend, a friend of mine argues that, that that Cornell can't be the archetypal 77 show because Terrapin Station is not on it. And that was their, that was, you know, their other big, their other big piece that year. Well, and I've been checking out other shows from like that month too. And they would do like 20 minute, like sugarees that uh, around that time. And, and I don't think that's in the Cornell show either. And I, like, there's a sugaree from like, uh, uh, like Pembroke, Florida, or something. May twenty second. Oh yeah, that's an, yeah, that's an amazing. That's, that's awesome. The one that's on the uh, the pitchfork list that I just edited. Oh, is it? Okay. That, uh, that I, that's Good that plug I, there, by the way. Uh, my that was uh, Buzz Poole, the writer for for that entry, picked that choice. But there there were ten versions of Sugary from from May seventy seven, and they're all kind of equal equally amazing. Yeah. That, and and my personal favorite is actually the St. Paul version from uh, Oh yeah uh, the eleventh. Or no, the thir- the thirteenth, um, and it's um, no, no. I take that back. The eleventh, <laughs> um, which has you know a whole set of sort of loud, quiet, loud dynamics where they're kind of going up and down and up and down. But Buzz, Buzz really sold me on that one as well. They're all you know they're amazing in different ways. One weird thing from the Cornell show is the Jack Straw has like a disco-y thing going on in it. Like, uh, and I, I was reading in that in the uh, oral history that came out in twenty fifteen, which I. The name is escaping me right now. Oh, this is uh, All a Dream We Dreamed. There's a thing in there where Donna, Donna Joe Gocho is talking about how Mickey Hart went, was like huge into Saturday Night Fever and like how yeah. he was like <laughs> slipping disco stuff into some of the beats uh, that he was doing. And like on that Jack Straw from the Cornell thing, you can hear like a little four on the floor thing going on. Which huh. is kinda, I, know, I never picked up on that. In yeah, the Jack Straw. There's, there's definitely you know, the dancing of the street uh, from Cornell is kind of the classic, just good head. And, you know, Shakedown Street, you know, the following year is sort of the, the culmination of that. Um, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fond of Disco Dead, actually. I oh, think yeah. I, well, and like, in, I got to say that the the dancing in the street, like that was never a favorite of mine, but I love the Cornell version. And I, I like the versions from that period. Uh because usually, like you know, them doing a fifteen-minute dancing in the street—that wasn't—that'd be something I'd maybe skip on a lot of live record. But like, uh, you know, the discoiness of that version is so great because they just kind of go in this groove for like a really long time, and it it becomes something else that's not that song. It becomes like right. This different I, actually, thing. I really like the uh, as far as the Dead's version of that song goes. The early—I don't know if you've ever dug into like the early versions of it from the Pigpen era, from you know '69 and '70, yeah. and even before that. That was a staple song, and it gets really like jazzy and dense. Right. Um, there's, there's like a t- uh, they do a jam on I think Archie Bell's Tighten Up in a couple of those versions. That's really cool. Um, so they do the, a lot yeah, of Motown I, songs back then. I actually found the disco dampen to be 
the song part, you know, the the, the, fal- the falsetto vocal. I've always kind of found that to be a little a little cheesy. But then they they get to the the, the jam, and it's you know it's not like one of those jams that that goes anywhere. It's kind of just a platform for Garcia to do his his thing to you know sort of just you know ramble and chatter with with his guitar. And he was using a, a what do you call it a, a mutron pedal or mutron pedal yeah. mutron I think um, that kind of to me sounds like rainbow laser beams or something <laughs> like that where it's just like you know this endless like detail high, highly detailed bouncing thing I don't know I I, I love I love that mode you yeah. know it's it's like it's like it's kind of like ambient music in some ways it's sort of static but it's um, but it's but it's not oh yeah <laughs> well instant, or you could be. Well, there's that, like, you know, that proto-EDM strain it runs in the dead a little bit, you know. Not so much musically all the time, but, like, just, just the influence <laughs> that they had on the culture, like the festival <laughs> culture of that scene, and just, like, the idea that you're going to play really long songs that people can just dance to that are like, long instrumental parts, you know. Like, that element of what they do um, is definitely in that song. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the Grateful Dead were dance music. That was, right. you know, for for everything else, they get labeled, you know, psych, you know, psychedelic or, or Americana or or avant garde or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call them. There's a a real early quote from Garcia, right, like '67, I think, right, right around the time the first album came out, and they're they're like, you know, kind of just out of the acid test period. Or some, you know, somebody asked them, well, you know, what kind of music do you play? He said, we play dance music for yeah. dancers. Right, and that that was that was what the the ballroom scene in San Francisco was, where were, were people dancing, and not not in a way that not in a way that we really think about rock music and dancing now. I, my impression is that people would really they wouldn't necessarily face the stage; they would you know they'd right. sort of be twirling and off doing their own things, and that kind of the later dead scene sort of evolved back into that. But I think there was kind of a, a period in the seventies where, where the dancing at dead shows maybe, maybe wasn't what we think it, think of it as. Um, I actually just watched a video from, from 77 from April um, at the Capitol theater in Passaic and people are sitting, which really was <laughs> kind of contradictory to me. I mean, I guess if it's a seated venue, it's, it, it, it makes some of that of sense, but I kind of always assumed that deadheads would just overrun everything and just, you know, dance it might have just been like amazing pot that night and people are like i cannot get up i'm <laughs> sitting here i'm just gonna it doesn't really get mentioned a lot around the dead though i'm sure it's present but you know it's certainly you know the moment that quaaludes are, are kind of like <laughs> oh yeah big and <laughs> so that aspect too yeah right so you people know, think about the cocaine aspect of the late 70s which is absolutely present in the grateful dead but there's also the, the whole the, the the downer part too well, yeah. Well, you know, you gotta you gotta do the lewds after the coke, or maybe the coke after the lewds. I don't know. Like, you have to get up. I, I can't say no my cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> so to kind of wrap up here, you know, we're talking about Cornell '77 being this historic show, but like, what are some other shows that you'd recommend to people? Let's say they 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 checked out Cornell '77. They're like, wow, this is pretty cool. I've never listened to a lot of de- live dead. What are uh, what are some good a next whole steps? Show, I would. Say eight twenty seven seventy two. It was released a couple of years ago as Sunshine Daydream. Yes, uh, and there's a documentary that goes with it as well. See, so there's um, it's not the whole show, but that has kind of like you know the legendary dark star. You know, there's 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 lots of amazing legendary dark stars, but eight twenty seven seventy two is the one that a lot of people like. You know, really really love. There's there's <laughs> 
there's a, a, a one there's a, a, a guy who used to edit one of the dead um, magazines, Dupree's Diamond News, who who wrote lots of essays about how that dark star dark star is a you know you know a, a transpersonal transdimensional vision quest that you know can be used to induce psychedelic states in people. Um, and that show has a monster versions of playing in the band and a really great uh, China Cat Sunflower. I know you rider and bird song. It's it's just they're really it's just really crisp and beautiful. So that's a great example of kind of the sort of the space jazz Grateful Dead of the early seventies. Yeah. Um, it sort of you know it depends on what what it is that that somebody keys into, which is why which is what makes Cornell um, what it is. It's it's really it's you know it's kind of right almost in, in a lot of ways smack in the middle of the dance musical development between this kind of wildly careening early band that would jump from psychedelic to folk to this, that, the other, to kind of the later band, which is this big sort of consistently inconsistent stadium act. Right. And and Cornell is kind of like, you know, it's got the tightness of the early band, but it's kind of on its way to that, you know, to, to the big happy grooves of the later band. So people like, you know, the big happy grooves of Cornell, you know, you'd, you'd probably, you know, probably push them into, into, in, into later years. But if, you know, it's, if they like the songs or the folk of it, you know, there's 82772, there's, uh, 213 and 21470 or the other, or the, or the, the sort of the staple yeah. early psychedelic shows. Harper College 5270 has uh, an acoustic set. Yeah. Um, you can hear them like by two it, electric it, sets, so that gets a, a nice full scope of, of that part of the dead where you've got some of the, that's sort of the period where they're both a folk band and kind of this wild psychedelic double drummer thing. Well, and that Harper College show too is also a good snapshot of them being this, this kind of college band because they're playing this acoustic set and they're playing songs that a lot of people don't know and, peop- and you can hear the audience just being confused that they're playing these like ancient sounding songs and like you know, I think there's even like a little bit of booing at one point and they just um, keep going and it's like, it's like, Hey, we're going to play these songs. And yeah. of course it's beautiful when they play it. I was going to mention one show. This is my favorite show right now. I've been listening to this a lot is, uh, I think it's ten nineteen seventy three from Oklahoma city. And oh yeah. Nice. I, I would throw that one out there. Just like, if you like Cornell, the sort of like the arena rock dead, them being very powerful and compact and loud and powerful. The Oklahoma City show is a good contrast. To me, that's just a really dreamy, kind of stoned-out, beautiful show. There's a great transition uh, yeah, on the third disc from Dark Star to Morning Dew. Uh, and then I think there's like Eyes of the World is maybe after that or so. Just beautiful, beautiful stuff. It, 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 not as loud, just kind of more mellowed out, but just a great snapshot of that side of the band. Yeah, no, there's a real, uh, there's a spaciousness to the way they were playing in in 73 that is you know a lot to do with the fact that they just had uh bill kreutzman as their their sole drummer right um during that era but they they were so so locked in and there's just a you know they they were just able to create these like cathedrals of sound you know with 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 just the five of them like that and they're both i love the way that um that uh lesh and garcia and Weir sang together you know phil People make fun of Phil's voice for kind of what happened to it later on, but like as a part of that, you know, to me that's what the great that that's what Grateful Dead vocals are. The three of those guys singing together, and you know, I I, I like Donna like a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely not a Donna Jean hater, but but to me the dead that the dead vocals have to have like Phil in them. 
What about Brent? You like Brent in there too, doing like the Michael McDonald uh, like bluesy thing? I think he. I think he has I'm his not, moments. Really, I, I've come around to Brent's keyboard playing yeah. over the years. I've gotten I've gotten past some of the tones he 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 employed, but his voice is something I've never really gotten to. Yeah, him you singing know, like places where it's like I don't necessarily mind it, but it's like the I've never been a fan of that like sort of Warren Haynes affected blues rock thing. It's just not not for me. You know, so like the the Dear Mr. Fantasy, like where he's like going low yeah, and he I goes high and like all over the place. The Grateful Dead doing Dear Mr. Fantasy uh, on my computer. <laughs> <laughs> not for me. That, that's, 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 there's a line in the sand, dude, and across the line you do not, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I You know, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm starting to warm to Brent Midland, so I think I've like re- maybe I've crossed the Rubicon of Grateful Dead fandom, where I'm like, oh, hey Brent, Brent, not bad. I'm enjoying the Brent song, so I don't know. Yeah, no, I've t- like I I've tried. <laughs> I, I I go back every couple of years, and it's you know, and I guess I find them better than I did when I was you know a pickier young younger person, but there's still just something about the vibe of them that to me doesn't it doesn't match up with with what i want out of the yeah. grateful dead it's all part of the package man it's yeah all... you know it's true t- um <laughs> i noticed or not i noticed uh but my buddy daryl noticed that uh brent's pre-grateful dead band silver which can be found for a dollar their lps be found for a dollar or less in a thrift store near you uh or they could are, are featured on the guardians of the galaxy 2 soundtrack which blew my mind oh yeah like what was their? <laughs> they had a big song uh, I think big is relative. It's like uh, it's uh, wham a lam or ding a yeah. It's something. It's like late seventies. Like soft rock. It's like AOR. It, it's like part like swacky late seventies, but also kind of that post American graffiti, you know, rock and roll nostalgia thing. It's like to me, <laughs> it's like the two the, the the parts of both of those things that I don't like combined into into one into one. <laughs> Well, so, uh, well, since we're that, since we're now delving into uh, Brent Midland uh, like pre-dead uh, projects, it's probably time for us to wrap up because I feel. Like, <laughs> that's a fine uh, point. You mean you don't want to talk about about Vince Wilmick's pre-dead project? Well, he was in the Tubes, right? Yeah, he was in the Tubes. He was, in the tubes. He was, yeah, he was also in a band called Beans in the Phoenix area, it was like yeah. a psychedelic era sort of bluesy, jammy kind of band. Some, well, of that, some of that stuff circulates. I kind of like some of that. We are we are through the looking glass of, of, <laughs> of Grateful Dead yeah, keyboardists. We're in the Black Lodge or whatever. <laughs> right, right. We, or, uh, or what's the, uh, the upside down. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we, we better back away while we while we uh, still have our lives here. Uh, uh, it's too late for me, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, Jesse, man, it's always a pleasure. I could talk to you Absolutely. about the dead for hours, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll cap it here for now. But thanks again, man. And uh, I know you're going yeah. to the screening tonight, so enjoy yourself. Thanks. And, and, and uh, well, so just to wrap the, you know, one last thought in another 20 years, whatever, people will be clamoring for the 40th anniversary shows from the 80s and the 90s. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure there's going to be there's going to be a lot more to talk about in terms of critical reassessment of, of, of kind of the later years. So, well, we can continue this at some future date. Right. We'll all be wearing tie dyed shirts with John Mayer's face on it. So uh, <laughs> we'll look forward to that in 20 years. Uh, <laughs> we'll look forward to that in 20 years yeah that'd be great alright man well hey thanks again man take care you too talk right. to you later Stephen. bye bye alright that was Jesse Jarnow and me talking about the Grateful Dead you know talking about dead keyboardists at the end there I, <laughs> we kind of got off track I mean I honestly could talk to Jesse for hours 
about the Grateful Dead. It's so fun talking to him about this band. He's so knowledgeable about it. Um, And quite frankly, you know, I'm at my house with my wife. My wife does not want to hear about Grateful Dead shows, you know. So if I can find someone who cares, I'm going to chew their ear off, you know, while I have the opportunity. Um, Guys, thank you so much for listening to the episode today. Uh, I just want to say, you know, I, I made reference to this in the interview. I interviewed the director of Long Strange Trip. His name is Amir Barlev. I wrote a little bit about my thoughts in the, uh, on the movie. Um, you can find that at uprocks.com. Um, recommend you checking that out. Um, also, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor this week, which is SeatGeek. It's our first time advertising with us, and we're so happy to have them. Um, again, I, I just want to bring up this great deal for our listeners. You can get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the app and enter the promo code CELEBRATION today. That's promo code CELEBRATION for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Um, all right, guys. Well, thanks again for listening. This has been Celebration Rock, and uh, we will talk to you again next week.